0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to get started. There'll be a few more people taking their seats, and I'm told that there's plenty of room upstairs. If you feel cramped, you can go upstairs, either now or before the next session. I'm Don Oberdorfer, the class of 1952, a career journalist for 38 years, and now have the wonderful title of journalist-in-residence at the Paul H. Nitze School of Advanced International Studies. Of Washington, in of Johns Hopkins University, in Washington D.C. I am um, pleased and honored to be part of this celebration and in honor of George Kennan's centennial. As you all know, Kennan was one of the great diplomatic figures of our time. He was so important for so long that and so influential, both inside government and outside of government, that paradoxically his influence today may be underrated. This day is an effort to remedy that. I met uh, Mr. Kennan when I was a Princeton undergraduate a little more than 50 years ago. He was here in Princeton temporarily on leave from the Department of State. And I saw him as a journalist when covering uh, foreign policy And um, as a visiting professor when I was here, I had a wonderful opportunity to interact with him firsthand. Besides uh, benefiting from and sometimes commenting on his ideas, I'm also grateful to George Kennan for something very personal that happened in 1977, the first time I was a visiting professor here at Princeton. He suggested to me, that I should keep a journal, as he has throughout his life, of uh, my ideas and activities. And so the next year, in 1978, I began doing so and did so the rest of my time, the rest of my 17 years as the Washington Post diplomatic correspondent, something which helped me reason, helped me keep my brains straight through... Some exciting and confusing times, and which will eventually I will mine in my later writings. So I'm very grateful to him. This is by no means to compare my writing with his. As you heard from Richard Ullman a little while ago, uh, George Kennan is a master of the English prose. In fact, I would say one of his most important attributes was his ability to speak clearly. Cogently and very powerfully in the English language, written or spoken. And it set him apart and beyond almost all other diplomats of his time, from the long telegram which is on display over there at Firestone, this way, I guess, um, uh, to his writings, the author of 15 books. Who else among the diplomatic corps has received both the Pulitzer Prize for his books and the National Book Award, nobody I would say, and whose writings are nearly all bestsellers. This afternoon's panel is composed of four distinguished scholars, three of them who were also uh, diplomats during their day, diplomatic practitioners, they're each going to speak for about 15 minutes or less and roughly in chronological order as to the periods that they cover in uh, George Kennan's uh, uh, activities as a diplomat. And then if we stick to this or anything like this, we're going to have, this will end, we're going to make sure that it ends promptly at 345 or earlier, and that will give us 45 minutes before the next session. There's a tent right outside where they will have refreshments in, these, in that period before the next session. And also, there are facilities for your use in the basement of this building and also a couple of uh, portable johns or whatever they call them outside. Um, and we'll have plenty of time for questions and answers and for the panel to react. So I'm now going to introduce the panel very briefly, because if we went on to all of their accomplishments, we'd use up all the time. But the first will be Professor Robert Tucker, who is not on your program. Bob Tucker was originally supposed to be here, but he came down with pneumonia. And uh, due to the curative powers of this occasion, he called up a couple of days ago and said he could make it after all. he is here, an esteemed scholar, professor emeritus of Russian <coughs> studies at Princeton, the founder and first director of the Russian studies program at Princeton, the author of seven books on the Soviet various aspects of Russia and the Soviet Union, one of which, which was published in uh, 1994, George Kennan wrote, a, wrote him a 3,000-word letter, which is published in one of Kennan's books, commenting on it. And besides everything else, Professor Tucker was an attache at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow at the time when the long telegram was written. So that gives him a particularly interesting view of uh, that episode and of of George Kennan's career. Uh, next is Professor Bill Pickett, of the rose Holman Institute of Technology in Terre Haute, Indiana, where he's professor of history. Uh, he's an expert and uh, a writer, particularly about the Eisenhower administration. And he's written several books about Eisenhower's foreign policy. And he was the editor of a little publication by Princeton in its oral history series, about the Solarium project, which I expect he'll tell us something about, in which Kennan was a major participant. Then uh, next to him, he's a little introduction to a Princeton audience is Jack Matlock, uh, former ambassador to Russia and Soviet Union, uh, who was director of uh Soviet affairs under President Nixon in Soviet Affairs in the State Department. He was a deputy chief of mission in Moscow under President Ford. And then uh, in the Reagan administration, he was ambassador to Czechoslovakia, then senior director for European and Soviet affairs of the National Security Council uh, from 1983 to 1986, a particularly busy time in diplomacy, and ambassador to the Soviet Union from 1987 to 1991 under the first uh, George Bush. So, um, and I might add that Jack Matlock's monumental book called Autopsy on an Empire, about what happened to the Soviet Union, is, is really one of the most important books in the field. And he has written a new book, which will shortly appear, called Reagan and Gorbachev, How the Cold War Ended. And finally, uh, Bob Hutchings, who is now chairman of the National Intelligence Council of the Central Intelligence Agency, but is on leave from the Woodrow Wilson School, where he was assistant dean, assistant dean and a teacher in international affairs. He was the director of the National Security Council for European Affairs, during the East European Revolutions of 1989 and uh, the unification of Germany. This was all during uh, George H. W. Bush's administration and the collapse of the USSR and the author of a book called, My, uh, called American Diplomacy and the End of the Cold War. So now, uh, having those introductions out of the way, I'll talk to turn to Bob Tucker and then in turn the uh, other speakers.
1: I'm very glad to be here and I'm going to talk about the long telegram as an act of leadership. February 1946 was a key moment in the rise of the Cold War following the Second World War. On February 9, Stalin gave a programmatic speech in Moscow, his first major post-war address. He conjured up in it the specter of another great war, latent in what he called the capitalist system world economy. He said that further military catastrophes were inevitable because there was no way for countries to divide up markets and raw materials by coordinated and peaceful decisions. Therefore, Soviet Russia would have to devote its resources and energies in the coming years to developing the basic industries to the point at which she would be guaranteed against all contingencies. This, he said, will take perhaps three new five-year plans, if not more. Stalin's speech, in effect, projected the post-war period as another pre-war period. It said that policymaking would have to be rigidly subordinated to the one great overriding imperative of arming so that Russia standing alone in a hostile world might be and feel safe. It implied that there was no other way of coming to terms with the hostile external environment. These twin concepts of the primacy of the external danger and the impotence of diplomacy to alleviate it were crucial in Stalin's thinking. His speech was an envisagement of the post-1945 period as a repetition under new conditions of the post-1928 cycle of events. At that time, moreover, Stalin's post-war course of expansion was well underway. Soviet satellite regimes were being implanted in the countries of Eastern and East-Central Europe, which were liberated by the Red Army at the close of the Second World War. Their leaderships were dominated by East European communists who could be depended upon to fulfill instructions received from Moscow. This was a gradual process, but by early 1946, the pattern of Soviet domination of these countries as well as the Soviet-controlled eastern sector of Germany was becoming clear. On February 22nd, George Cannon, who was then chargé d'affaires of the American Embassy in Moscow, in the absence of Ambassador Averill Harriman, sent to the State Department a very lengthy, then classified document, which became known as his long telegram. Here, to intrude a personal note, I might mention that I was then a young attaché of the American Embassy and was privileged to serve as a research assistant to Kennan in looking up one or another matter in books which were then in our embassy library. Always historically minded in his approach, he, as I recall, Instructed me to look up one or another fact concerning the Tsarist pattern of policy toward Eastern Europe. Although the long telegram did not refer specifically to Stalin's speech of February 9, it did speak of what it called the Kremlin's neurotic view of world affairs. And it said that the Soviet leaders were driven to view the external world as evil hostile, and menacing. This was, of course, something that Stalin's speech had illustrated. Summing up the argument, the long telegram said, we have here a political force committed fanatically to the belief that with the U.S. there can be no permanent modus vivendi, that it is desirable and necessary that the internal harmony of our society be disrupted, our traditional way of life be destroyed, the international authority of our state be broken, if Soviet power is to be secure. In composing and sending to Washington his long telegram, Kennan was, wittingly or unwittingly, acting in the role of a political leader For it is a prime function of political leaders to diagnose problematic situations confronting their political communities. And this is what the long telegram did in its analysis of Stalin's post-war course of aggrandizement and the conflict situation between Soviet Russia and the West, which was an inevitable result of it its diagnosis of the then-emerging Cold War. It is a function of a political leader not simply to clarify the course and causes of a problematic situation which has to be confronted. A leader must, and normally does, also prescribe a policy response by the political community to this situation. This Kennan began to do when he went on to say that in the the long telegram that America must formulate and put forward for other nations a more positive and constructive picture of the sort of world that we would like to see than we have put forward in the past. And he concluded by saying that the greatest danger that can befall us in coping with this problem of Soviet communism is that we shall allow ourselves to become like those with whom we are coping. The long telegram produced an electrifying effect in and upon official Washington. It was read by President Truman, members of his cabinet, and by very many U.S. government officials down the line and became in very many ways the underpinning of America's posture in the oncoming years of the Cold War. And in the following year, Kennan went further in prescribing a course of conduct aimed at helping to resolve the problematic situation as he had defined it. He did this by publishing in the influential journal Foreign Affairs an article entitled The Sources of Soviet Conduct, signed X. Here he wrote that the stress laid in Moscow on the external menace was founded on the need to explain away the maintenance of dictatorial authority at home. Then he went on to propose that the main element of American policy toward Russia should be, as he put it, a long-term, patient, but firm and vigilant containment of Russian expansive tendencies. Here again, his leadership proved decisive. The policy of containment was adopted by the U.S. and its Western allies. And after Stalin died in 1953, this policy did indeed become, as he foresaw, one that would promote tendencies in the Soviet bloc, which would eventually find their outlet in either the breakup or the mellowing of Soviet power. Finally, the X article proved prophetic in its prediction that if disunity were ever to seize and paralyze the ruling Communist Party, the chaos and weakness of Russian society would be revealed in forms beyond description. Soviet Russia might be changed overnight from one of the strongest to one of the weakest and most pitiable of national societies. This is precisely what occurred toward the close of the 1990s. And Kennan's phrase is the best description we have of the present condition of Russian society. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Don. On October 28, 1992, just a few days before the presidential election in which Bill Clinton defeated George Herbert Walker Bush, the New York Times published an op-ed piece by George F. Kennan. He was responding to a Bush campaign claim that the Republicans had won the Cold War, he said, quote, The suggestion that any American administration had the power to influence decisively the course of a tremendous domestic political upheaval in another great country on the other side of the globe is intrinsically silly and childish. Kennan said, The Republican policy of relying on military force was, if anything, counterproductive. Quote, The more the American political leadership was seen in Moscow as committed to an ultimate military rather than a political resolution of Soviet-American tensions, he said, the greater was the tendency in Moscow to tighten the controls by both party and police and the greater the breaking effect on all liberalizing tendencies within the regime. The United States, he implied, had unnecessarily prolonged the Cold War. In retrospect, it's possible to understand Kennan's obvious frustration. As the nation's foremost expert on Soviet Russia in the 1940s and 50s, the individual who more than any other had provided the intellectual underpinnings of American strategy known as the Truman Doctrine, he was aware of key groups on both sides of the Iron Curtain who, either from fear of or a vested interest in Cold War, had been, the unwilling, had been unwilling to seek a less costly and dangerous route. This Republican claim of Cold War victory was apparently just too much. Kennan, we now know, had earned the right to be aggravated. Just four years earlier, at a gathering at the Woodrow Wilson School, the Dulles Centennial Conference of 1988, he had commented publicly for the first time on newly released documents at the Eisenhower Library, revealing that he personally had had a role in shaping the national security policy, not just of the administration of Harry S. Truman, but also, although briefly and to a modest extent, that of his successor, the Republican, Dwight David Eisenhower. His discomfiture in 1992 was at least in part from the fact that the American National Security Affairs had drifted from the course he had envisioned in 1946 in his famous Long Telegram. Uh, Which characterized the Soviet Union as intransigent and militant, and in 1947, in his advice to Truman, contained in Mr. X article in Foreign Affairs, about the need not to conquer but pre- or, not to conquer or prevent, but rather to contain Soviet expansion. While American national security policy had strayed and at times taken side trips, it had not lost focus on the real nature of the threat and thus on the appropriate response to it, which he believed was as long as the West remained unified and strong, long-term, economic, and political. And it was this kind of containment, as implemented by first, first by Truman and then by Eisenhower, that, according to Robert R. Boy and Richard Emmerman in their excellent book on Eisenhower's Cold War strategy, provided, quote, the indispensable external context for the Soviet collapse and the peaceful resolution of the Cold War. My contact with Kennan began with his ideas expressed in uh, required readings for graduate courses in uh, Russian and American diplomatic history at Indiana Euro- University in the mid-1960s. For the, for-, for the former, I read his decision to intervene about President Woodrow Wilson's dispatch of American troops to Siberia and northern Russia in 1918 following the Bolshevik Revolution, whose troop activities had the effect of, if not the purpose, of aiding the opponents of Lenin's new Bolshevik government. For the latter course, I read his classic American Diplomacy, 1900-1950, which spoke of a United States that was isolationist in the 1920s and 30s. In Kennan, the historian, I found scholar-diplomat par excellence, an individual for whom history was a repository of lessons for the conduct of public affairs. One lesson was the extreme cost of World War II and some 55 million dead of American refusal to participate in global political and diplomatic affairs. During the 1930s, fascist imperialism had gone unchallenged. The Munich Conference of 1938, in which the democracies bowed to Hitler's military pressure on Czechoslovakia, became, for Kennan and his generation, a symbol of infamy. Containment, the policy Kennan helped to fashion in 1946 and 47 as State Department official and head of the department's policy planning staff, would, he believed, be the best response to a new post-war totalitarian threat, this time from the Kremlin. It would bring not isolationism, but engagement in world affairs, economically, politically, diplomatically, and if necessarily, the less likely, militarily. Kennan's analysis was a sophisticated one, requiring mastery of history's lessons and a willingness by the nation's leaders to move in a purposeful and consistent fashion. By the spring of 1950, however, Kennan no longer was on the policy planning staff of the State Department, and he detected problems with American policy planning. As the Truman administration had responded to crises, its national security policy increasingly reflected a fear of Soviet military power. Uh, Czechoslovakia fell to the communists, and the Soviet Union blockaded land routes to Berlin in the first half of 1948. In 1949, the Soviets built and tested an atomic bomb, and the Chinese communists took over the mainland. Then, in early 1950, Truman's new advisor, Kennan's successor as head of the State Department policy planning staff, Paul Nitsa, wrote in a National Security Council memorandum, 68, that the Soviets, quote, envisioned complete subversion or forcible destruction of the machinery of government and structure of society in the non-Soviet world. It recommended a stockpile of atomic bombs and a program to build a bomb 100 times more powerful, the hydrogen bomb. It also recommended a crash program of rebuilding American conventional forces with the purpose of seeking some kind of resolution, perhaps rolling back Soviet power in Eastern Europe before 1954, which it considered, quote, the year of maximum danger. By that year, NSC-68's author estimated the Soviet Union would have sufficient nuclear weapons to counter the American nuclear arsenal. Kennan saw the need for some military buildup, but was critical of the concept of a year of maximum danger. He, uh, he quote, I had a very strong feeling, he later recalled, that this, the Russians were not going to attack us, but that, on the other hand, their strength, the strength of their armed forces, the disparity between theirs and ours, was a reality and would not go away. Our plans, he said, ought to be laid in a military sense in such a way as to endure for many, many years into the future. In this, he saw eye to eye with, another Soviet, with other Soviet experts, especially Charles, F, Charles E. Boland, who also spoke out. The disagreement between advocates of rollback in SC-68 and the advocates of containment, plus Truman's apparent agreement with the former, although unwilling, un- unwillingness, in the spring of 1950 to seek congressional approval of appropriations to implement an SC-68, revealed an uncertainty in Truman's Cold War strategy that caused one potential Republican candidate, Dwight David Eisenhower, to believe that the nation needed a firmer hand at the tiller. In the summer of 1950, however, with the North Korean uh, communist invasion of South Korea, Truman asked for the appropriation and it passed. The Cold War had become both militarized and global. Kennan served a brief stint as U.S. ambassador to Moscow from May uh, To October 1952, and and with the advent of the Eisenhower administration the following spring, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles on March 14, 1953, fired him from government service. Kennan retreated to the Hall's and grounds of Princeton University and the Institute for Advanced Study. Kennan's final, but until the mid-1980s, little-known opportunity for personal influence came later, in the summer of 1953. President Eisenhower had admired Kennan's thinking, In 1948, when Eisenhower was president of Columbia University, Kennan had served on a committee sponsored by the Council on Foreign Relations to study the effects of European recovery program. Eisenhower, as chairman of the committee, had had agreed with uh, with Kennan's views, embodied uh, that year in in NSC Memorandum 20 slant 4, that American nuclear monopoly and economic power and the Soviets' own domestic weakness uh, and the Soviet's own do- domestic weaknesses would prevent the Soviet Union from launching an attack. Military pressure, Kennan felt, because of the so- Soviet regime's priority of survival and power, and abhorrence of war would bring neither a weakening nor a softening of its position. The Soviet leaders, he believed, would not launch an unprovoked attack, but they would use fear of a militant U.S. at home to justify their existence and continued totalitarian rule. What was needed, he he believed, was a reasonable and sensible compromise between the political and military approaches. This view Eisenhower found compatible with his own determination, something that would increase during his two terms in office, to avoid, if at all possible, the coercive use of American military force. In the late spring, uh, it was thus not not surprising that in the late spring of 1953, Eisenhower asked Kennan to be chairman of of one of three ad hoc task forces in a top secret three week long policy planning exercise codenamed Project Solarium. Uh, there's a uh, pamphlet in your folder uh, that uh, details that, uh, and uh, it contains the transcript of a session at the Woodrow Wilson School in which Kennan, Goodpaster, and Robert Boy uh, rem- reminisced about their participation in the Solarium meeting of 1953. Its purpose was to examine thoroughly the nation's security policy in the light of the Korean War, the the creation of the NATO Defense Force, and the previous March, the death of the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin. It also provided a way for Eisenhower to take control of national security policy. When the exercise was finished, Eisenhower ordered the recommendations from Kennan's task force, ordered that the recommendations from Kennan's task force be combined with those from others and, and the NSC planning board. In yet another memorandum, NSC 162, slant 2, this new policy statement, often referred to as the new look, superseded NSC 68. It discarded the latter's concept of a year of maximum danger. The Soviet Union, it said, posed an ongoing long-term threat, abandoning any possibility of rolling back Soviet power by military force. It embraced nuclear deterrence and patient but persistent political and economic containment. By the end of Eisenhower's term in office in 1961, despite Kennan's view of a less threatening Soviet Union, American national security preparations were in high gear. Eisenhower's efforts to maintain deterrence combined with a series of foreign policy crises beginning with the Taiwan Straits crisis of 1955 and including the Soviet launching of Sputnik, the first space satellite in 1957, Khrushchev's Berlin uh, ultimatum in 1958, Uh, Many Americans, that's to cause many Americans to fear that the Soviet Union had allowed the Soviets to to get ahead, first in bombers and then in missiles. The danger and presidential, uh, the danger, they and presidential advisors said, was from a surprise attack, a nuclear Pearl Harbor. While Eisenhower, perhaps better than anyone else, uh, understood the danger, his aerial intelligence gathering operations had persuaded him that the U.S. was not, U.S., not the Soviets, were ahead. He also knew that beyond a certain point, when considering nuclear weapons, relative advantage was meaningless. He nevertheless, to appease his critics, increased defense spending and accelerated testing of nuclear weapons and the American people and their congressional representatives, influenced by apparent Soviet missile breakthroughs and by the claims um, during the Eisenhower lame-duck second term of the candidates for presidents such as John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Bates Johnson that the United States had fallen tragically behind in the arms race became increasingly to feel that security depended upon the possession of more and better weapons. By this time, what political science Derek LeBert has called a spending constituency for national security and everything that might accompany it had become a dominant Washington lobby. (coughs) Eisenhower, in in the early drafts of his farewell address, called it a military-industrial-congressional complex. and a a scientific uh, technological elite involving we university people in this as well. By the end of his presidency, the United States had produced a ring of American military and air bases around Soviet territory, sent American reconnaissance flights over over the territory, and built thousands of nuclear weapons on a variety of launch vehicles. As early as 1959, the United States had 2,000 strategic bombers, 14 aircraft carriers, 114 Polaris missiles on 9 submarines, and 200 intercontinental ballistic missiles, and this was in 1959. Needless to say, as Stansfield-Turner has pointed out, That would increase to something like 32,000 warheads. Uh, In in retrospect, Kennan's work, while accomplishing less than he had hoped, did nudge American policy in a favorable direction, away from both the NSC-68 and the 1952 Republican National Convention's advocacy of an American effort to roll back communism and liberate the countries of Eastern Europe. The Solarium Report, as had, early, had, as had the earlier containment policy, recommended that the United States, with its allies, develop areas of economic and political strength and stability as a basis for negotiations that, with the steady weakening of the Soviet system caused by spontaneous internal difficulties, would bring a peaceful resolution of conflicts. NSC 162's guidelines underlay Eisenhower's belief and his efforts to negotiate, beginning Uh, belief in American possession of deterrent military force, both conventional and and nuclear, combined with a resolve to use none of it to roll back Soviet power. Uh, And and his efforts to negotiate, beginning with a test ban treaty, an end to the nuclear arms race. It was at the Dulles Centennial Conference in 1988 that I, by then a professor, had the opportunity both to meet Kennan and to hear him speak at a session devoted to the newly uh, released solarium documents. He called the solarium exercise with satisfaction. He recalled it with satisfaction, but also with misgivings. The Eisenhower administration, Kennan said, generally accepted his own task force uh, proposals for the financing of national defense, the size of the military, and the relations with the Allies, but he said the political parts were not taken seriously. The State Department, for example, refused to accept the recommendation that the United States should offer to withdraw from West Germany in exchange for Soviet withdrawal from East Germany. This, he felt, at least would have put the onus on them if they refused for the failure of German reunification. This recommendation, it is clear in retrospect, ran against Eisenhower's need, given the Soviet intransigence in the Korean War, for a separate West Germany as the keystone of a new NATO defense force, one of Eisenhower's primary considerations upon entering the presidency. Despite such misgivings, Kennan believed that what the new president set out to accomplish was sound. Indeed, he called, he recalled that Eisenhower, in his summary at a, at a full meeting of the NSC in Ju, uh, July 19, or rather July 16, 1953, of the various Solarium Task Force recommendations, uh, he, uh, Kennan recalled that Eisenhower demonstrated his intellectual ascendancy over everyone in the room, including himself. Kennan believed that despite the periodic crises and and hysterias, containment remained uh, remained American policy after 1953. A review of the events generally confirms this observation. Despite the uh, crises in Hungary and Suez in 1956, in the Formosa Straits in 1955 and and 58, in Berlin in 1958 and 61, and after the downing of an American spy plane over Soviet territory in 1960, Eisenhower avoided armed conflict. The two sides signed an armistice in 1953 in Korea and then met in Geneva in 1955, at Camp David in 1959, and in Paris in 1960. Deviations from Eisenhower's efforts to avoid use of coercive force uh, occurred with the landing of U.S. troops in Lebanon during the unrest in 1958, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the United States intervention in Vietnam. And the enormous Carter-Reagan arms build-up in response to Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, but as the Solarium report had predicted, the Soviet Union remained in control of its satellites until 1989. Using Warsaw Pact troops to rein in Hungary in 1956 and Czechoslovakia in 1968, the People's Republic of China remained firmly in place, but its relations with the Soviet Union had had fallen apart by 1960. Alliances in uh, alliances in Western Europe, the Middle East, and the Far East, along with the negotiated treaties for a limited test ban, nuclear test ban, strategic arms control and detente during the, during the Nixon years. Uh, and finally, arms reductions allowed in due, in due time, but longer than Kennan had hoped, for changes within the Soviet system to play out technological, economic, social, and cultural change combined with the forces of nationalism to favor individual freedoms and national autonomy, if not independence. These forces began working against the Soviet Union in the 1950s because it was then that, in the words of historian John Lewis Gaddis, internal reforms intended to restore competitiveness competitiveness shattered authority both internally and within uh, the international communist movement. They became unbridgeable and, as it turned out, irreversible in the 1980s after the new Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, perestroika and glasnost allowed new kinds of freedom. The gulfs between the ruling party and the Soviet people and between the center and the Soviet periphery began to widen. Agreements negotiated by the Republican President Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev in 1987 brought the first treaty to eliminate an entire class of nuclear missiles, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. The Soviet leader, then having withdrawn troops from Afghanistan, announced a unilateral withdrawal of 500,000 Red Army troops from Eastern Europe. He then disbanded those troops, and the disintegration of the Soviet Union, uh, Soviet Empire began. Clearly, Kennan in 1992 had been correct to deny that the Republican Party in the United States, for that matter, deserved credit for the end of the Soviet system. And history has shown that he was correct in his assertions of, of 1947 and 1953 that just as diplomacy without strength is fruitless, strength without dip- diplomatic restraint is counterproductive. Thank you. <clears throat>
3: I began studying Russia and the Soviet Union in 1946, and I started my foreign service career in 1956. So I, early on, of course, was aware of the X article later the long telegram, and being one who spent most of his career dealing with the Soviet Union, I read with fascination and for great profit uh, Ambassador Kennan's various works. Most of these were written and published while I was still on active duty and some of them while I was serving in Moscow. And looking back, I find that there is something that is a seeming paradox. First of all, I think those of us who knew the Soviet Union, who studied it, recognized how profoundly correct much of Ambassador Kennan's analysis had been. On the other hand, we disagreed with him on many of the conclusions he drew as to current policy. Yes, he was the author of containment, And yet, by certainly the mid-'50s, the early-'60s, he was already almost disavowing himself. He wrote in the first volume of his memoirs, If, then, I was the author in 1947 of a doctrine of containment, and he placed doctrine in quotes, it was a doctrine that lost much of its rationale with the death of Stalin and with the development of the Soviet-Chinese conflict. I emphatically deny the paternity of any efforts to invoke that doctrine today in situations to which it has and can have no, no proper relevance. Well, I think the problem there was that sometimes the rest of us, including our government, saw a relevance that he didn't see. It was not so much the, uh, uh, a mistake about the basic meaning. We thought we were doing what necessary to contain the Soviet Union, and we thought that more military measures were necessary uh, than George Kennan um, considered. And the public focus, generally, throughout all of these years, whether we had a Democratic or a Republican administration, was that Kennan's views were completely out of sync with American policy. And on the surface, Obviously, many of them were. Let's fast forward a bit. 1983, the Reagan administration has now been in office for, it's in its third year, it's been in office for over two years. In Washington, there was a celebration, fairly private, sponsored by the Kennan Institute, of the anniversary of resumption of diplomatic relations between the united states and the soviet union a resumption that occurred in 1933 it was the 50th anniversary and of course george Kennan had been the then very young american diplomat who first went to moscow and made the original arrangements for an ambassador's residence and other things Uh, he in effect opened our first embassy in the soviet union so of course he was invited as was Soviet Ambassador Dobrynin. And if you recall, 1983, it was a time where it's, the tension seemed to be very high. It was the same year that Ronald Reagan in one of his speeches referred to an evil empire. By the way, he referred to that only once. Oh, you would think sometimes from comment that that's all he ever had to say uh, about the Soviet Union. People uh, were not allowed to forget it. And it was also uh, the year in uh, which negotiations on weaponry, nuclear weapons, were broken off when NATO began to deploy missiles in Europe. Either Ambassador Kennan or Ambassador Dobrenin and I really don't remember which, mentioned the phrase that the two countries seem to be on a collision course. I believe it was Kennan, uh, but I think both almost used similar phrases. I was present at the dinner, and I had gotten to know Ambassador Kennan. He had visited us in Moscow. He had visited us in Prague. Uh, we knew them personally, though I had never really engaged him in a deep discussion of the contentious political issues. Uh, it was more interesting to talk to him about more basic things, uh, which we often did uh, before then. And I recall going up to him and saying just briefly, because the occasion didn't allow a long discussion, I really think you're wrong. We're not on a collision course. And about the same time, he wrote two articles published in The New Yorker. One was entitled A Letter to an American Friend, another A Letter to a Russian Friend. And he expressed his great concern with the direction of relations and particularly the over-militarization. I I felt that he was really misunderstanding what was going on and was going much further in his inferences uh, than the facts justified. And I recall, I think, you know, uh, I shouldn't get into, um, I want to write him, I shouldn't get into any sort of official dialogue, but I want to write him personally. And try to explain why we're doing these things and what our aims are. And I, I remember over weekend, late at night, I wrote, I think, a six page letter. So, taking up the points in that. And starting by saying, you know, I, I know that your American friend is genetic, is generic, excuse me, is generic, (laughs) but let me pretend I am that friend and let me give you an answer. It's interesting, if he, I got an immediate reply, just a couple of paragraphs saying, you've raised so many questions, I want to give them thought, I will write a more adequate reply later. And then within 10 days, I got a much longer letter, three or four pages, where, frankly, he agreed with almost everything I said. And in his very often modest manner, uh, particularly in discussions and personal Uh, communications, he concluded by saying, I suppose I'm out of the facts of events to such a degree that I probably should stop commenting on them publicly. Well, he didn't, of course, and thank goodness he didn't. Uh, By the next January, we had prepared for President Reagan a speech uh, which to lay forth his ideas for dealing with the Soviet Union was delivered on January 16th, 1984. And it was one that was going to stress the possibilities of cooperation and put together the items in our agenda that we wanted to press. But the, the whole thrust was finding ways to cooperate, finding ways to reduce tensions and finding ways to reduce weaponry. I asked for authority to do so and it was readily granted and a few days in advance I called Uh, Ambassador Kennan and briefed him on what was going to be in it and we discussed them he was delighted and before I hung up he said almost wistfully you know you're the first government official who has ever called me to consult on any public matter since I left the Foreign Service I don't know whether that was literally true it's a little hard to believe certainly he had forgotten any other occasion but I can only say that he was enthusiastic, and after that, it was, I would say there were fewer occasions when he saw fit to speak out uh, in opposition to current American policy. On the whole, most of the things he was, we were doing, when he understood them, he approved. Just briefly, I do want to ask myself, now why is that? Why is the perception that somehow his views were so much out of sync? And I, I think that in thinking it through, looking at what we learned from his writings and his own um, uh, comments, that basically the, uh, what we were following, and in the, indeed President Reagan's attitude, was very similar to his in the basics, even though there were disagreements on some of the things. Now, what are some of these basics? Briefly, first of all, as Kennan wrote repeatedly, you, you must engage your adversaries. Stay, use diplomacy. You must engage them. And this, of course, was precisely where President Reagan always came down, despite the advice of many of his, I would say, outspoken advisers, uh, who thought that the Soviet Union had to change before we could deal with them effectively. Therefore, we had to force them to change before we talked. Reagan rejected that every time. He said, "No, we have to talk to them." Second, the view of disarmament. Uh, I found in one of his memoirs the following comment when he had been sort of was arguing against some uh, um, disarmament treaty proposal. He said, "Armaments are a function." and not a cause of political tensions. And no limitation of armaments on a multilateral scale can be effected, as long as the political problems are not tackled and regulated in some realistic way. Well, President Reagan did not have the force of nuanced eloquence uh, of Kennan's prose. But he would often say, nations don't fear each other because they are armed, they arm because they fear each other. OK, that's not maybe literally correct, but isn't it the same thought that Kennan was? You've got to get at the political problems. You've got to get it. And just before Reagan went to his first meeting with Gorbachev in November 1985, he wrote a memorandum to some of us on the staff, and where he made it clear the main problem is not the arms problem, which we want to deal with. It's important, but we won't deal with it until we develop some trust, until we begin to solve some of the political problems that have given uh, have given rise. Now, in addition, I think that there was a very strong similarity in the views of the two between the difference in the Soviet Union and the communist system and Russia. This was something that often our political leaders somehow got confused in their minds. Kennan never did. And I was moved Wednesday when the former Soviet foreign minister, Alexander Bismertnik came and gave uh, an address at the Institute for Advanced Study, and he pointed out as a young Soviet diplomat how he began to read Kennan's writings and to realize that he was a friend of the Russian people. He loved Russia. What he was against was a communist system. And Bispertnik pointed out, of course, the communist system was against him for that reason. But to separate the two was extremely important. And that also is something that uh, President Reagan did very clearly. And uh, he showed it particularly in his visit to Moscow in 1988, uh, when he was asked, do you still think this is an evil empire? And he said, no, that was another era. And in effect, Gorbachev is moving things in the right direction. Um, The problem was not Russia, the problem was communism. And this was something Kennan saw, this was something Reagan saw. Nuclear weapons, Reagan wrote at great length, of course, on nuclear weapons, their uselessness and so on. I don't think he could have hated them any more than Ronald Reagan. Now, they came to different conclusions. Reagan's conclusion was we had to find a defense so we could abolish them. Uh, Kennan suspected, did not agree uh, with that particular argument. But the thrust that we've got to find a way to find the political way uh, to reduce these and put us on a road toward eliminating them, I think, was common to both. And finally... Of these things I'm going to recount. Uh, I think both rejected what Kennan called the liberationist slogans, those that had been used, particularly in nineteen fifty-two, uh, to attack his containment policy, which also was misinterpreted uh, uh, as we have seen in other things. Uh Reagan also refused to play the nationality card, as you might put it. Yes, we thought that. The Baltic States should be given their independence that 's very clear, but the fact was we did not set out in the Reagan administration to bring the Soviet Union down uh, as a matter of fact, what we were trying to do was to use um, the was to use our military strength to convince them that they had to stop pushing people around outside their borders. It was an attempt to change their behavior so I think when we get down to the basics. The understandings that go behind making a policy, I think we can find that as we began to construct a policy that started us on the road to a very rapid ending of the Cold War, Kennan's view and the official view began to converge more and more. And it was perhaps as far as the most fundamental basics, that is, that the Soviet Union was not going to last forever, it was in difficulties, that you did not want to threaten them directly from the outside. You might oppose their attempts to militarize things elsewhere, but you don't threaten the Soviet Union with military action, which we didn't do. So I think in the final analysis, we find that uh, the discrepancies in over policies over several decades were perhaps less important than people thought at the time. And in the end, the sort of analysis that lay at the basis of Kennan's analysis also motivated those of us in the government who were advising the president. And particularly, I think, with Ron Reagan, they found a real cord, not because George Kennan said it, but because he had many of the same perceptions, many of the same motivations. Thank you very much.
4: Let me uh, continue what I think is the same theme that Jack Matlock just laid out. Uh, you, you might call it the, uh, the magic and the curse of the containment strategy. The curse is what concerned Kennan for much of the period of his post-government life, and that is the strategy of containment was so elastic that people could fill it with content that he felt caused to repudiate, especially the over-militarization of the concept of containment. I think the magic, though, was that the, the core ideas stood up for for half a century, and the core ideas contributed to the peaceful end of the Cold War on much, the ter- in much the way and on much the terms that Kennan thought they would. So let me talk about the very end of the Cold War, and I must say it's nice to leave Washington for a day or two when government policy is being criticized from every quarter to return to a period which by, in which by most accounts we got it right. Um, Those of us in government are used to hearing from our academic and journalistic colleagues that when something goes wrong in the world, it was our fault, but when something goes right, we weren't a factor. It was uh, Ambassador Kennan himself who put it in a letter to Walter uh, Lippmann in April 1948, a letter written but never sent, in which he was recounting the transformation of Europe since the promulgation of the Marshall Plan and lamenting, the the meager credit that had fallen to the U.S. government for these events. Quote, if the development of the past year had been in the opposite direction, if there had been a deterioration of our position as great as the actual improvement, there is not a one of you who would not, not have placed the blame squarely on the failure of American statesmanship. Must it always be heads you win, tails I lose for the U.S. government? So, with that in mind, I make bold to insist that American foreign policy at the end of the Cold War was not only successful, but brilliantly, spectacularly successful. Now, let me hasten to add that that's not the same thing as saying that we caused these events. They grew out of very deep roots. The proper measure of American diplomacy in this period, as in others, is whether we saw the possibilities before us and acted in a manner consistent with our values, our principles and our interests. Um, And let me also hasten to add, since I'm one of those in Washington who suffer from bipartisan disorder, that this was not a Republican contribution. This was, and it was not attributable to the few of us who happened to be in government at the very end of the Cold War. It was the consequence of a succession of American administrations, Democrat and Republican alike, beginning with the genius of George Kennan. Let me take you back to the spring of 1989. Gorbachev had been in power for four years and had ushered in a hopeful period in East-West relations, but nothing much had tangibly changed in the Soviet Union yet. In Central Europe, however, change was coming fast, particularly in Poland and Hungary. In Poland, the Round Table Agreement between the Solidarity trade union and the government of General Wojciech Jaruzelski promised free and open elections to be held that summer. Similarly, hopeful events were taking place in Hungary. Our judgment in Washington at the time, this was April 89, was that if free and fair elections were held in Poland as promised, this was the beginning of the end of communist rule in Poland. If that were the case, this was the beginning of the end of communist rule everywhere in Eastern Europe, including East Germany, which meant that German unification had just leapt onto the international agenda whether the world was ready to deal with it or not. Now, our appreciation of the possibility of such sweeping change was by no means a prediction that it would actually occur, much less that it might occur within the space of a few months. But having seen this possibility, we developed a strategy for helping facilitate the peaceful end of the Cold War. With the Soviet Union, we sought to move, quote, beyond containment, end quote, and to gain Soviet acceptance of peaceful democratic change in Eastern Europe as a necessary precondition for improved East-West relations. We based our strategy on at least three of the foundations of the containment strategy. First, that conflict between the two superpowers was not inevitable or forever. Second, we should not seek positive relations with the Soviet Union merely for the sake of positive relations. And third, that the contradictions in the Soviet system on which containment rested were more likely to be manifest first in Eastern Europe than in the Soviet Union itself. Thus, President George H.W. Bush's first major foreign policy speech was about Eastern Europe. Um, his first foreign trip, not counting a quick one to Ottawa, was to Brussels for a NATO summit in which he elevated Eastern Europe to first place on the international agenda. Uh, as early as May 20th, in a meeting in Bunkfort with President Mitterrand, Bush talked, raised with Mitterrand the possibility of German unification six months before uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. In early July, Bush traveled to Poland and Hungary to throw U.S. weight fully behind the democratic processes at work in those two countries. Um, A month later, Poland had its first non-communist government since the Soviet takeover. By the end of the year, the revolutionary tide had swept over the entire region. Did U.S. policy make a difference? Would history have taken a different turn had the United States sought an understanding or a strategic partnership with Moscow, as many were urging on us? Or if we had merely sat in the sidelines to see how things developed before taking the risk of throwing our weight behind Eastern Europe? I think it did make a difference, uh, a decisive one. It's of course impossible to demonstrate a counterfactual, but I would say that had Bush not gone to Poland, the election results of that summer would have been quite different. Public public apathy would have prevailed and the massive pro-solidarity turnout would not have materialized. And the glorious revolutionary year of 1989 might never have been. I think it would have come within a decade or so anyway, in some fashion, but uh, it, it was partly caused, I think, by the way American diplomacy conducted itself early in the year. U.S. policy obviously did not cause these developments. They grew out of very deep historic roots. But it did help create the international conditions conducive to their success. By the same token, we saw German unification coming sooner than the Germans themselves and through U.S. support fully behind the process. Had we joined France and Britain and, of course, the Soviet Union in opposing unification, or if we had merely remained passive – what would have happened? I think the Germans would have had no choice but to seek whatever deal they could get with the Soviet leadership, which held veto effective veto power by virtue of their sta- having stationed 500,000 troops in Eastern Germany. Uh, as Hans-Dietrich Genscher, the then German foreign minister later said, if America had so much as hesitated, we Germans could have stood on our heads and gotten nowhere towards unification. And by the same token, had we failed to work with our allies to address legitimate Soviet security concerns arising out of German unification, we might have provoked a backlash, an anti-Gorbachev, anti-Shevardnazi backlash in Moscow that could have led to bloodshed rather than unification. Again, we did not cause German unification any more than we caused the revolutions of 89. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, unification was coming whether we willed it or not. But U.S. policy was instrumental in seeing that it came out right, with full sovereignty returned to a Germany that had been united in peace and freedom. This, by the way, was the belated fulfillment of George Kennan's Plan A of a united, sovereign, unoccupied Germany, and the belated transcendence of that plan which he opposed, Plan B, the Berlin or the London program for a divided, occupied Germany. Now, if our role was instrumental in facilitating self-liberation in Eastern Europe and decisive in the diplomacy of German unification, it was less central to the process of dissolution of the USSR itself. Still, I think we were wise enough not to try to interpose ourselves between the center and the republics to hasten the, the breakup of the Soviet Union, as some in the Pentagon at the time were urging us to do. Even, and I'll take you back to a little episode that you may remember, even the so-called Chicken Kiev speech, which was roundly criticized at the time when Bush was seen as urging the Ukrainians not to seek independence, even that speech, which virtually everyone agreed later was a mistake, probably made little difference historically. It seems to me that history would have turned out much the same had Bush not given that speech, had given a safer middle-of-the-road speech, which would have been a wiser thing to do. Arguably, however, if Bush had delivered a fire-breathing call for Ukrainian independence then, that was June of 1991, this might have energized a stronger constituency behind the anti-Gorbachev coup that erupted two months later. If he had to err, he was wiser to err on the the side of caution rather than um, urging uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union. Now, I've given... American diplomacy high marks for facilitating the peaceful end of the Cold, Cold War. I give it lower marks thereafter, and I, again, I'm saying this in a bipartisan way, lower marks for the way the Bush administration and then the Clinton administration handled the post-Cold War environment. I won't get into this too deeply because that's really the purview of the, of the next panel. Besides, I be, begin to get into my official responsibilities and might have to commit honesty if I went too far. Um... <laughs> But I, I will go slightly over the line. I, I would say that one of the core complaints Kennan had about America's containment strategy as practiced was its over-militarization. I think this also affected our post-Cold War approach. The policy of elevating NATO, of NATO uba um caused us to see our role in Europe too much in terms of that institution, and caused us to see our post-Cold War role in the world as too uh, much determined by, determined by military power as opposed to other things. This has led us to all, all sorts of uh, difficulties. Difficulty, for example, in coming to terms creatively with a more united Europe and, and ceding power to the Europeans in a more graceful um, way. And now we're, we're in the process of NATO's uh, second wave of enlargement. and. NATO has now found itself a role in Afghanistan. There's now a search to make NATO relevant in some fashion to the requirements of the greater Middle East, uh, which may be a, a bridge too far. So I think in some ways the distortions of containment that Kennan rightly identified manifest themselves in our post-Cold War orientation as well. Let me conclude with a personal confession here. When I was writing the, the conclusion to my book, American Diplomacy: and the End of the Cold War, I was in residence with John Gaddis at the Woodrow Wilson Center. We were both writing books, and I was trying to decide what to put in this conclusion. He urged me to say something about the concept of national interest since it was so poorly understood. So I thought hard and wrote this. Let me, let me just quote a few lines. Setting up interests against principles was a false dichotomy. Promotion of core values and principles was part and parcel of our interests, but principles alone were an insufficient guide in a world where the number of problems needing solution vastly exceeded the resources we had at our disposal for addressing them. They led either to an open-ended set of responsibilities that Americans in the end would be unwilling to shoulder, or to the arrogance of believing we could and should impose our grand design on the rest of the world. An interest-based foreign policy, by contrast, should bear some relation to to capability, a consideration that would help set priorities and impose limits on our ambitions. Far from being immoral or illiberal, such a foreign policy would recapture a spirit of tolerance, respect for the legitimate interests of others, and a certain caution for intruding into other people's business unless it impinged on our own. This sounds almost like the quote from Macaulay from 1845 that Ambassador Kennan just read in the video. It also is almost verbatim, I, I shrink to say this, from a 1985 foreign affairs article that Kennan wrote called Morality and Foreign Policy, yet I swear I had never read that article when I wrote those words. I only read that about a decade later when I was preparing for a graduate to teach a graduate seminar here at Princeton. So if this ever came up, I think on technical grounds, I'm innocent of the charge of plagiarism. But, and I'll end here, if anyone ever asked me, isn't it true, Hutchings, that all your best ideas you stole, either directly or indirectly, from George Kennan? I'd have to say guilty as charged.
0: <laughs> well, that was great. We've had four terrific presentations about... Uh, Kennan, ranging from different periods. One who was his research assistant. We didn't know that, Bob, on the long telegram. And Professor Pickett on on, uh, Eisenhower and then both Jack Matlock and Bob Hutchings uh, dealing with the end of the Cold War and how that did or did not conform to what uh, Kennan anticipated and and written about. So now it's your turn. Uh, We'll... uh, uh, entertain questions unfortunately there's no microphone um, out there so unless I think everybody has heard what you have to say and that's highly improbable because there are people up in the balcony uh, I'm going to repeat the questions uh, if I recognize you please say your name even though many of us might know you other people don't so we'll start here and then go over here and there The question, I think, is to Bob, Bob Tucker, how long did it actually take for Kennan to draft the long telegram? Was it sent in code? Uh, and uh, what was the last part? When did, it when, did it, oh, when did it become public?
1: I'm afraid the first and the last part of that, I can't really answer. Um, what was the first part?
0: First part, how long did it take them to write it?
1: Oh, yeah. It took several days. Uh, he it, it, it wasn't done all, all at once. Uh, and just exactly how long that was, perhaps four days, perhaps five, I'm not quite sure. Um, as regards the second part of the question.
0: Was, was it sent in code?
1: Or uh, that I don't know. I think uh, it, was se- it was certainly sent as a classified document. Uh, what that meant in terms of code, I, I just don't know.
0: Yeah. All right, another question here. yeah The question is, uh, the observation was made that uh, in addition, or I think in addition to the containment policy in in a security fashion, that there was an economic contest between the United States and the Soviet Union, which basically determined the uh, results of the Cold War. And a further question is whether we're better off today having, uh, I suppose, uh, dispersed threats around the world rather than having the Soviet Union there. So, uh, I don't know who wants to take that no. on, but...
3: Well, first of all, yeah, I'll, I'll make some comments on it. Um, ultimately, yes, I think that it was not just economics, but what was uh, the decisive factor was that our system turned out to be, I think, a better one, more viable, more able to deliver what people want, and more efficient, Uh, theirs turned out to be not at all efficient and unable to really keep up with modern technology. That was going on behind the scenes. But don't forget that uh, there was, I think, a real military threat. I think the assessment we made in Vietnam was an incorrect one. Uh, The assessment was that initially that this was part of a worldwide conspiracy and you had to contain communism everywhere to contain the Soviet Union, I, I think that was incorrect, and I think Kennan saw that it was incorrect at that time. On the other hand, it doesn't mean that there was not a military component that had to be dealt with. Uh, I think finally we came to look at that, at least uh, at the time that we were developing our policies in the 1980s, uh, that we had to convince the Soviet Union that it could not win an arms race, or by building up, it could not somehow both perpetuate the system by making it look successful uh, and at the same time derive military advantages from that. In fact, one of the, along with trying to develop trust, uh, Reagan set for his own goal at his first meeting with Gorbachev, I must convince him that if he wants a arms race, he will get it, but he will lose it. Therefore, let's forget the arms race and find ways to calm it down and to get the confidence in each other we need to do that. So I think we did have genuine uh, military and defense problems. Not that we faced, as sometimes we feared we did, a sudden attack from the Soviet Union. I don't think that was the threat. And I actually, I don't think most of our presidents thought that was the threat. But a Soviet leadership which thought that they had an edge militarily would and almost certainly have used it to derive political benefits and sometimes some very serious ones. That's what Reagan really worried about. And and you were dealing with perceptions. And yes, you can argue we went too far. Uh, maybe we did. But when a mistake could have wiped out mankind, you sort of reinsure. And the main thing, we thought, make clear that there is no future for this in this. And if you continue, you're going to ruin your own country. And and Gorbachev became convinced of this. It's interesting for me uh, in reading now Politburo records that we can read that two years after we were making this point, Gorbachev was making the same point to the Politburo by early 1987. And he was using the argument, you see, the Americans want to involve us in an arms race because they know they can win. We've got to call their bluff. We will start cutting arms. We've got to prove to the world that we're not causing an arms race. And he was using this rationale. Now, if we hadn't stood up, I think, you know, we would have faced the continued use of military power to spread power, and, you know, these things could escalate. So, the, uh, I do think that that's these one of the areas that I cons- fairly consistently disagreed with some of of uh, Ambassador Kennan's conclusions during this period. Uh, but uh, I think you're quite right that the underlying factors were, I think, not only economic, but also social and political. After all, it's not just a matter of economy. Uh, we have a free society, at least relatively speaking. And, uh, and I think that's important. And we do have different values, and values that basically are not alien to Russian culture or to other cultures. Uh, and I think that basically, uh, that having handled sort of the military threat in a way that they couldn't benefit from it eventually, uh, then we were able, I think, better to convince them on the other side.
0: Bob, do you want to comment on that?
3: I'll just make a quick observation,
4: and I think perhaps the Cold War went on, on so long that we forgot or tended to forget what it was all about in the first place. The containment strategy, the Marshall Plan, the Truman Doctrine were about, in the first instance, the stability of Europe and only secondarily about the Soviet threat. With Soviet acquisition of nuclear weapons um, approaching the, the size and lethality of our own, we began to equate the Cold War with the Soviet threat and it took on a universal character to it that may have caused us to lose, the, lose focus on the political context out, out of which it arose.
0: I could just say I want to add one thing to this. As a hanger-on uh, journalist following these uh, Cold War uh, summits and so forth, I remember at one of the meetings between Gorbachev and Secretary Schultz. in fact, more than one in many of those meetings, Schultz, who was, of course, an economist, spoke to Gorbachev about the economy, about globalization, about what was going on in the world. And Russia was nowhere in all that at that particular time. And Gorbachev at one point said... Uh, I want you to come back. I'm going to make you the head of Gus plant. (laughs) That was the planning, economic planning part of the USSR. On another occasion, he threatened Schultz and said he didn't like what he was saying and that if you don't uh, moderate your line of thought, I'm going to tell President Reagan that he should fire you as secretary of state. To which George Shultz said, that doesn't bother me, I'm a tenured for pres- professor at Stanford University.
5: <laughs> anyway, another,
0: there was a question, well we'll take yes in the front row. Question was, is it true that George Cannon opposes the current war in Iraq? Does anybody here know? Okay.
5: Yes.
3: Um, you I know. I okay, did, well, I know. Well. I, I talked to him about that in the spring. I've not talked to him recently. He was very much against it.
0: What was yes. his rationale?
3: He thought there was no threat to us directly,
1: yeah. and that, yes. 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 In, in an interview that he gave uh, in 2002 in Washington, uh, he stated quite forthrightly that he was opposed to the whole idea of an invasion of Iraq. Uh, he I, I forget the particular points that he made in that connection, but he saw in advance that it would be a catastrophe.
3: But you know, I, As I would it also turned out add, me, he, throughout his writings, he has been very skeptical of the ability of the United States basically to change the culture and the politics of other countries. He thinks it has to come from within. I, I think he is more skeptical than I would be, but that's also part of it. He simply did not also accept that if we occupied Iraq, we could change it. And, you know, he may or uh, may or may not be wrong, but that's one of the reasons, one of several that he opposed. Yes.
0: I think we've been ignoring the people upstairs. I'm going to take a question. This gentleman has got his hand up up in the balcony. I don't know if those of you downstairs could hear the question. Could you hear it? Okay. The question was basic, I mean, to put it simply, what was the role of Raisa Gorbachev and Nancy Reagan in creating a degree of trust between uh, their husbands and and the two countries they represented?
3: First of all, I I would say the two first ladies did not get along very well. Uh, (laughs) But I think each urged her husband uh, in the right direction. Certainly Nancy Reagan was determined that her husband would go down as a man of peace. Uh, she made sure that he gradually got rid of some of the people who uh, uh, she thought was not prevent- uh, creating that image, uh, most notably Pat Buchanan, for example. Um, and um, she, I, I think in that sense, uh, she did a lot to calm down those in the administration that were sort of feeding him the uh, some of the hardline rhetoric that was uh, early on. Raisa, I believe, was more ideological uh, than Gorbachev. I don't know what advice she was giving him. I do know that So we learned, as did many of Gorbachev's people, that he would not make decisions without her. She was enormously influential on him. And some of our psychologists, to analyze the situation, said that uh, he relied on her so much, particularly for psychological support, particularly when he came under a lot of opposition, uh, that her support, uh, she in some ways was better educated than he was, uh, probably, you know, smarter in an academic sense, and uh, so that uh, I think she probably played a more direct role as a sounding board and an advisor in that sense. So, yes, both of uh, of these ladies were played important roles and roles that have not been particularly recognized, I think maybe because of public attitudes that uh, wives are not supposed to interfere too much. And this is particularly true in Russia. They have that uh, attitude. Uh, But uh, uh, I think both did play important roles.
0: Okay, back on the aisle there. Question was, uh, based on a book, I believe a book by Peter Gross, uh, about rolling back the Soviet Union, that Kennan, according to this book, or according to the questioner anyway, was, uh, involved in, uh, creation or conception of black propaganda, sabotage, covert actions, and so forth against the Soviet Union. And the question was, is this true, or do you think it was true? Uh, and, uh, so uh, he asked it. Uh, I think, uh, particularly of Jack Madlock, but but oh
3: no, maybe he asked it of you. But... Well,
1: I think it should be Jack. <laughs> no,
3: I uh, <laughs> I don't know. I was not in the government then, <laughs> and I haven't. I, I did when uh, th- this article was published, uh, and citing documents, I did ask Kenan about it. Uh, he said he did not remember. Uh, being involved in that. And he speculated maybe this was something done at the staff when he was at the War College. Now, you know, one doesn't remember everything. I've been told that his signature is on some of those papers. Uh, I, I don't know the answer. Uh, I do know that very often uh, maybe he was more meticulous than I was. But if you have 30 or 40 papers to suddenly approve and sign, you don't always read them carefully. Uh, and whether that was the case, whether it actually went out of his office over his name because he was officially there but he was away, uh, I don't know. But in any event, he it did not ring a bell with him when I asked him directly.
4: I could just make a footnote to this. if you The, the article I mentioned earlier called Morality and Foreign Policy that occurred, that was printed in the, no, the, the winter 85-86 issue of Foreign Affairs. He devotes some pages to the intelligence function. And... Uh, I infer from reading it that they were somewhat self-critical, that he found that the intelligence operations that had been up, built up during the Cold War, perhaps, I emphasize perhaps, uh, out of necessity, were of, uh, of dubious uh, value for a democratic country in a, in a very different environment. It's, it's
2: worth reading. you have anything Well, all I would say is that, of course, as I understand, this article, this book is a good book. Uh, and that this, of course, occurred when Kennan was uh, uh, director of the policy planning staff of the State Department. Uh, and uh, this was prior to uh, the Soviet acquisition of the atomic bomb. The United States still had a nuclear monopoly, so things per- perhaps weren't as dangerous. Uh, he may have been thinking in those terms, but he also just may have made, a, made a mistake. I think this, these efforts in uh, Eastern Europe failed miserably, and he probably learned a, le- learned a lesson by it.
0: Right? This lady back here. Okay, the question was addressed first to Bob Tucker. Um, the questioner in points out that in reading of the long telegram, there is a part of it that says American society should take action in its own stead to improve American society, not just oppose the Soviet Union. And the questioner wonders what kinds of ills he had in mind that the United States people and government should do something about. And whether this has any particular, what relevance this might have in the present circumstances.
1: I greatly regret that it didn't occur to me to ask him that question at the time. <laughs> uh, and I, therefore, can't really say what answer he would have given uh, as to what answer one would give now.
0: Yeah. Well, what are the ills now that you see that might apply, I, I guess, the questioner is asking. It
1: might apply in what way.
0: In the sense of position to cure thyself. We, we, ought to do, we ought to do something to take care of our own problems, not just opposing somebody overseas.
1: Well, we have a great many problems in our society. Uh, and We have naturally problems of foreign policy and what to do in our relations with foreign countries. Uh, those problems in our own society have to do, as we all know, with the the situation with regard to the economy, the loss of jobs, and various other problems that we have. And I think we ought to be very, very diligent in applying our best resources to uh, resolving these problems best that we can. I, don't, I think the,
0: the, at lunch, uh, yeah. Rich, Richard Oban mm-hmm. made a point of saying that Kennan uh, had become very interested in environmental issues. Uh, in recent years and spoke about it a lot, wrote about it a lot. I don't know if, to the extent to which, and maybe those who have seen him more recently would know, that he has taken aboard the problem of HIV-AIDS, which is an international problem that is huge uh, compared to nearly any other kind of urgent problem. Bob,
4: Just a small point. There's a current debate in Washington about the, uh, the new Afghan constitution. The issue is to what extent we should insist that the Afghan people uh, enshrine extensive uh, rights of women in all dimensions of their political life. And uh, there was no sense of irony when I asked whether we were going to invite Afghans to this country to help push for the passage
3: of the Equal Rights Amendment. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, in that tape we saw at lunch, Kenan also mentioned what sort of the cheapening of entertainment and uh, news and so on uh, and sort of the dumbing down I, that was not his word of course but i think he, almost that aspect sort of the what he would see is a loss of intellectual quality in much of our public discourse uh it certainly worried him worried him probably earlier and still does
0: yeah he said that uh in the tape that the advertising business had taken over public discourse both in journalism and government <laughs> something that hitting journalist certainly would decry, I do. He, uh,
2: and he mentioned in the tape that uh, the uh, presidents weren't addressing large issues if they were not uh, popular, uh, and uh, environmentalism was one of them, but that's why he was calling perhaps for a council of presidential advisors. is that uh, what he called it? Something like that.
0: Okay, uh, right here, yes, sir. Right, yeah, yeah, you. Okay, well, this is a question, obviously, for Professor Pick. Uh, if Dulles fired Kennan, what did Dulles think when Eisenhower got Kennan to be one of the leaders of this project to figure out American foreign policy known as the Solarium Project? Uh,
2: for a long time, uh, historians wrote that John Foster Dulles actually made American foreign policy during the Eisenhower years, and, and Eisenhower went along. It turns out that with the opening of the papers, some of which uh, Fred Greenstein, I think, saw first. It turned out that actually Eisenhower made his own foreign policy, and Dulles consulted with him very regularly uh, to make sure that he was in sync with what I had in mind. So, if I decided that he wanted to have John Foster Dulles—I mean, uh, rather uh, George Kennan—at this thing, John Foster Dulles went along with it. Uh, and uh, and I have to admit that uh, if you read the transcript of this of this uh, session. At the Solarium session in 1988, uh, the Dulles Centennial, George Kennan is delighted about uh, being able to stand up in front of uh, Dulles for for 30 minutes and brief him in 1953 on what American foreign policy should be.
0: (laughs) That's great. We have some run. The question is, uh, in today's uh, government of Washington, would it be possible for a telegram from overseas to have anything like the impact that Kennan's long telegram had in the U.S. government, or have things changed so much that that would not be possible?
3: It would be very rare, uh, but it was very rare also when the long telegram was written. I think, really, the answer is for something like this to be effective, whether it's long or short, it has to come at the right time. And there are that many times when the leaders of our government are basically questioning whether the direction they're going is the right one. Now, if you have, and, I mean, I, I don't mean that ironically, but, uh, this, but the fact was that during the war, you know, they were, they were thinking in terms of post-war cooperation with the Soviet Union. The U.N. was based upon this. Bretton Woods, well, you know, actually, he had received actually a cable from Treasury about the lack of that. And Kennan was able to see very clearly this wasn't going to work. But also the people in Washington were increasingly beginning to see. But they didn't have anything in its place, and they didn't quite know why. And at that time, where problems were accumulating, we were in the middle of trying to set up a post-war order, here, this comes in a cable explaining the situation we're in. And, you know, I would say there are not too many times in history that any diplomat has that opportunity. I, would it, could it happen today? Well, if you had similar sort of, you know, uh, questioning and uh, the right one came in at the right time, perhaps. Uh, I don't think it's any more difficult today than it was then. It's just that it's not something that's going to happen very often. My, colleagues, my colleague is too modest. I recall
4: two cables that he sent in from Moscow in early '89, as the Bush administration segued into uh, the Reagan administration segued into the Bush administration. Two long cables that had a powerful impact because they laid out a strategy for of engagement of the Soviet Union that did have did have an impact. Um, I would say that it's unlikely that you would have a cable from the field that went beyond a single country. There are so many turf issues that make it very difficult for any sitting ambassador to comment on issues that go beyond his or her scope. So that means we're really talking about entrepreneurial ambassadors in a handful of posts uh, with the courage of their convictions and a good sense of timing on all other issues. It's very hard to to get past the impediments. If you want to make policy, you come back to Washington and do it quietly.
0: All right, we're going to have one last question, and then I... I promise you I have forty five minutes before the next session. This uh, military person in the front row, I think we owe him one. Question is from a West Point cadet who asked, "Did the civil disorders in the United States and upheaval on um, civil rights and uh, anti-Vietnam give the Soviet Union uh, the impression that uh, they had a big advantage and a uh, leg up on us, or
5: not?"
3: I don't think it was so much that. Uh, although I think they uh, they did feel that uh, this was. Uh, uh, weakening the United States, it was our failure to achieve our aims in Vietnam, uh, that, uh, convinced them, I think, that they could, with impunity, uh, begin to take advantage of uh, situations elsewhere in the world. And so we had, in the 70s, uh, Cuban troops and arms turning up in Latin America, in, uh, Africa, and so on. So I do think they, uh, they, they, they felt that we had sort of proved that uh, uh, direct intervention that, you know, we were probably not for a while going to intervene directly and they could begin to take some military advantages. At the same time, I would say that uh, they, they were very much uh, in accord with dealing with Nixon. They liked Nixon. They thought they could do business with him, and most of them were convinced that Watergate was an anti-Soviet conspiracy. Uh, brought about because Nixon uh, was dealing with them. Uh, And uh, that probably had as much, you know, uh, as as much uh, um, impact on their thinking. In general, after Franklin Roosevelt, they generally preferred to deal with Republicans because they felt that the Republicans represented the real power in the United States, the capitalists, Wall Street, and under their ideology, they were the real controlling factors. Uh, And uh, therefore, if you could make a deal with them, you could cut a deal that would stick. You could, you know, uh, Carter could sign a treaty and the Senate would turn it down and did not approve it. So uh, I don't don't think the civil disturbances in and of themselves uh, were that major a factor. But the failure in Uh Vietnam certainly encouraged them.
0: Well, you have heard, uh, I think, a very interesting discussion and presentation of various facets of George Kennan's ideas and, and his public life. I think he would approve this uh, panel's uh, uh, spirit of intellectual inquiry. He might not approve of everything that was said here. It's hard to tell. I hope maybe someday he'll look at the tape or, or hear something about it but I hope you will join me in thanking our four panelists for their (laughs) and and as I said, there's a tent out there with refreshments there are also some facilities out there and downstairs and the next panel will begin at 4 o'clock, right here
5: Oh, sorry, 4.30, not 4 o'clock, 4.30.